The following is produced by Artisan Church. Welcome to the Artisan Church Podcast, a weekly broadcast of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. To learn more about Artisan Church or to support the ministry, visit www.artisanchurch.com. So before we jump into the Gospel of John, would you pray with me? Thank you, Lord, Lord, for your word, and we pray that this morning as we open it, uh, your spirit would speak to us, that uh, the ideas that we uh, look at today would be ones that, that come from your heart and are imprinted on our own hearts, that this would be part of uh, our experience of worshiping you, is to hear uh, your word and this story about your son Jesus and what it might mean for us and for our life. We thank you in his name. Amen. So, the reading from the Gospel of John is John 2, uh, verses 13 through 25. Would you stand for the reading of the Gospel? Excuse me, through 22. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. Making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, Take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, What sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, This temple has been under construction for 46 years, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead, His disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. May God bless the hearing of his word. You can be seated. So this story takes place in the uh, the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. And in order to understand what's going on, I think it's sort of important that we have some sense of how the temple operated, what it was, and how it was regarded at the time of Jesus. So let me give you, let me walk you through this um, a little bit, and I'll, I'll kind of do this sort of quickly. But the most basic concept that you need to understand about the, the Jewish temple uh, in the Old Testament, and then as it's uh, visited and mentioned in the New Testament, is that it was the permanent location for the presence of God. Now, when the Israelites, uh, after they'd been uh, taken out of slavery in Egypt and were wandering in the wilderness for forty years, they had no permanent home, and there was no permanent place of worship, and so they worshipped uh, using a, a tabernacle. It was like a, a tent, basically, a mobile, mobile version of what would later become the permanent temple. And that was where God's presence became localized, and that was where the animal sacrifices and things would take place. And the permanent temple was constructed during the reign of King Solomon. 
This was a, several generations after the Israelites had come into their permanent home, uh, they, thought, they thought and hoped, um, in the uh, Promised Land. And so the temple was built by King Solomon, and it had, it was, it, there were various versions of it being defaced and destroyed and then restored or repaired or rebuilt. And uh, one of those was in process at the time of Jesus. The temple had been destroyed uh, and it was being rebuilt. It started being rebuilt in 20 BC uh, in, under, the, under the leadership of the Roman Empire, actually, in the Jewish uh, expression of faith there. And it wasn't finished until 64, so it was, uh, it was uh, in process at this time. And that's why they said to Jesus when he said, I'll rebuild this temple in three days, they said, this has been going on for 46 years. That's what that's in reference to. But the temple is where God's physical presence is localized or was localized. Um, and in order to understand how that worked, you need to know how the temple was laid out. So the temple is laid out um, in these kind of layers of different courts. In the most outer court of the temple was where um, anybody who wanted to begin to approach God could go. Not only the Jewish people, but also God-fearing Gentiles. In other words, Gentiles who uh, were kind of in the process of, of converting to Judaism and exploring that idea. But they had to stay in the outer court because they're still ceremonially unclean as non-Jews. And then in the next inner court was where the Jewish women could go. They could only go this far, though, because there was a, a, another inner court where the men could go. And, and in that court was where the altar for sacrifice was located. And it was called the holy place. And there the animals would be, would be slaughtered and then burned and consumed. And then finally, there's the most inner place in the temple, the smallest area in the very middle. And it was separated by a veil. And it was called the most holy place or the holy of holies is how that, how that literally worked out. And the only person who could go into the Holy of Holies, because that was where God's actual presence was localized, was the high priest. So the priests could do sacrifices in the holy place, but only the high priest, and then only once a year, could go into the most holy place. Um, and in that most holy place were some sacred artifacts from the, from the Israelites' history, and uh, that's where the, the most important sacrifice of the year happened on the Day of Atonement, when the entire community's sins would be, sacrificed, uh, would, be, would be atoned by the sacrifice made by the high priest. So the temple was the only place where a Jewish believer could, could offer a sacrifice, which was required by Jewish law. And even though the population of the Jews was spread out in the Roman Empire, the temple in Jerusalem was a place that they had to visit once, twice, three times a year to offer these sacrifices. It's required that they do it. And so on these holiest days, they would travel to, to Jerusalem, um, up the mountain to Jerusalem. That's why you have songs of ascent in the book of Psalms is when they're going up to Jerusalem to, to give sacrifice. From wherever they lived, and they would, they would sacrifice an animal. Now, ordinarily, that would be a large animal, like cattle, goats, lambs, that kind of thing. But there were allowances made for people who were poor, who could not afford to give, uh, to sacrifice a large animal. Now, remember, this was essentially a form of currency, these animals. If you were wealthy, you had lots of them, and if you were poor, you had none of them. And so for, for the poor people in the community, they were allowed to make a sacrifice with a bird or a dove, usually, a turtle dove, 
instead of a large animal. And because many of them had to travel, it was impractical for them to bring the animal with them, and so you could purchase animals as you went into the temple. So now you're starting to see how the story is uh, taking shape, why Jesus found people selling animals in the temple. And then lastly, one more requirement of the Jewish people was that they had to pay an annual temple tax in order to worship at the temple, and this went to the cost of restoring it and so forth. Uh, So if you were a poor person, actually living out your faith was more difficult than if you were a wealthy person, because not only did you have to sacrifice an animal that, that you may otherwise not have purchased or kept or raised, but you had to pay this temple tax. And the temple tax had to be paid in Jewish currency. Couldn't use Roman coins because that's Gentile money was unclean. Couldn't be used for temple purposes. All right, so now we have animals being sold in the temple and money changers who could exchange in the outer court your Roman money, your Gentile money, for Jewish shekels. And, and you had to have your animal in place and your Jewish money before you could go into the inner courts of the temple. Now, this system had led to some corruption, as you can imagine. The exploitation of the less fortunate was running rampant. So you you can't afford to have your own animal. You can't really afford to keep it and bring it with you. You're going to buy it when you get here. We're just going to mark that up a little bit. Yeah, you, you can buy a dove from us, but... Oh, no, that's the price of the doves where you come from. This is a temple dove, so you can understand why it costs a little more, right? And then you're going to need to change your money out, of course, and uh, well, we, can't, we can't just like, provide you with the Jewish money at no cost. There's a, there's a fee associated with that. Um, and so you have this, there's nothing else to call it but profiteering in the name of religion. You know, we read the Ten Commandments a few minutes ago, and uh, speaking of ideas that I had imprinted on me when I was a, when I was a kid growing up, the, the commandment against misusing the name of the Lord, does anybody know what that says in the Old Testament, in the, in the, uh, not the Old Testament, the Old English, the, the King James Version? Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord in vain, right? Which the only understanding of that that I had as a child was swearing, all right? You don't say, oh, my God. To this day, I still cringe when, when somebody says that or if I say it. Um, and you definitely don't use the name of Jesus as a swear. And to this day, that's, that's, that's more offensive to me than, you know, the F-bomb or any other word you might come up with. Um, and I do think that that's a valid interpretation of, this, one of, the, of, that, of that, that commandment. But I think it's so much broader than that and... If we only focus on that, we're missing so much else. When it says, do not misuse the name of the Lord, I think what was happening in the temple at the time of Jesus was that the authorities of the temple were, were breaking this commandment. They were misusing the name of the Lord by saying to the people, in order for you to worship our God, you have to line my pockets. That is truly making wrongful use to use our translation, of the name of the Lord. When you're exploiting people and extorting money from them, when all they're trying to do is just worship and do as they're supposed to do according to the tradition of their faith, can you imagine 
such an evil. Nothing like that would ever happen today. <laughs> Let's just say when Jesus comes back, I think one of his first stops might be the, the televangelists. <laughs> and I don't know if they have tables where they're counting all that money that the old ladies send them. But if they do, I wouldn't be surprised to find Jesus flipping it over. See, Jesus literally turned the tables on this evil, evil practice. And the response of the temple authorities is interesting to me. They say, what sign can you show us for doing this today? So I have two observations to make about that response. The first is um, simply that the, the, actually the book of John, which is the, where this story comes from, this version of this story, is, is structured and written in such a way that the word sign is very important. John presents miracles, seven of them, throughout his gospel, and they're called signs. And so when he uses the word sign uh, to quote these temple authorities, what he's doing very early in his gospel is setting up a contrast between what's going to actually happen, Jesus performing signs, and what people's expectations of him, especially the religious leaders' expectations are. They say, what sign can you show us? And John's going to say, well, there was just the wedding at Cana where he turned the water into wine. That's, that's the first one. And then you're going to see the raising of Lazarus and all these other signs. So the word sign is kind of important there. The second observation about that response, what sign can you show us, is this. That was a direct challenge to the authority of Jesus. See, sometimes when we read the Bible, and I probably was guilty of it when I read this passage a minute ago, you just kind of read it in a monotone. And you get to that verse and you say, and the people responded, what sign can you give us for what you've just done today? And Jesus said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And you just kind of go on and on and on and you know, your voice just does one of these things and you're flatlining. But if, if you could imagine that being performed as a play, the actors would have to... Um, would have to interpret the meaning of that sentence. Have you ever played that game where you, where you have a sentence of like three or four words and you just change the emphasis of the words? Like, I think you should go to church today. 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 You get the point? Like, <laughs> I think you should go to church today. I think you should go to church today. Right? So it, the, the emphasis really does change the meaning. And when, he, when, these, when these Jewish leaders say, what sign can you show us? I imagine that could have been said a few different ways. One, maybe, let's give them the benefit of the doubt for about 10 seconds, is that they were genuinely wondering of Jesus. Say, Jesus, what sign could you show us for doing what you've done today? I don't, I don't actually think that's what they meant, though. It could have been said very angrily after he's just, you know, made a whip and driven all the animals out of the temple and flipped over the money changers' tables and accused them of turning their fa his father's house into a, you know, a, a bank, basically. Angrily saying, What's, what? Where do you get off doing this? What sign can you show us to prove that you're allowed to do that? And it better be a good one because we are, we are coming for you if it's not. And the third way I kind of imagine this, and there's probably more, but the third way I imagine it is is what I think actually might be the case, where they're saying it kind of in the voice of the first one, 
with the attitude of the second one. And they're, they're being a little cryptic and a little sneaky and a little smarmy. And as if to say, we're going to give you a chance to explain what you've done. What sign could you show us for this? And before we, um, before we go after them too hard, could we imagine for a minute the way that we sometimes talk to the Lord? Have you ever asked God for a sign? Lord, give me a sign. That phrase, give me a sign, uh, sounds very spiritual and passive, doesn't it? As if to say, Lord, I just want to do your will. All I ask is that you make your demands known in a way that is incredibly obvious and impossible for me to miss. For example, Lord, if it pleases you, you could make a piano fall and land on a spotted dog on Tuesday. Right? And if you can just show me that sign... I will, I will be obedient to what I think you might be telling me to do. All I need is a sign. And what we're really saying is, Lord, you want something from me? What sign can you give me to make me think that I actually ought to obey you? And it had better be a good one that I can't miss, that I'd have no excuse because otherwise the answer is probably going to be no. So it was with that kind of attitude, I think, that the temple authorities asked Jesus for a sign that would justify what he had done. See, they knew that he had caught them in their evil. And so now their, their game is to try to turn that on him somehow and to say, well, you know, well who are you to say this? And Jesus' response is wonderful. Jesus is so good at cutting through people's BS. He says, if you want to ask me a cryptic question, how about I give you a cryptic answer? (laughs) You have a a question with a subtext and a hidden meaning? I'm going to give you an answer with a subtext and a hidden meaning. What sign can I give you? How about this? Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, Jesus knew how sacred the temple was, and to even suggest destroying it would be alarming. There's no more important place in the entire faith of Judaism than the temple, not even close. So it's kind of like he's saying, you think it's bad that I flipped over a table? Imagine this whole thing coming down. And here's the... Here's the whole point, though, of today is that he was speaking of the temple of his body. That's what the text says. So, yes, on one level, he had turned the tables, again, literally turned the tables on the evil that had taken root in the temple. And that itself was a pretty powerful, significant thing to have done. That's a statement in its own, right? He's correcting a corruption that existed in the institution in the institutional practice of the Jewish faith. He's restoring the temple to its rightful place as the location of God's presence and the place where people go to worship. 
That would be amazing. That would be important. That would be significant. But that's not all he was doing. He was speaking of the temple of his body. And in that regard, he turned the tables on the whole purpose of the temple. He offered a hint that the new place of atonement, of restoration to God's good graces, of forgiveness of sin, was not this building, but was him, himself, his body. And by the way, that particular truth is brought home over and over again um, throughout the Gospel of John. And actually, it's, it's of course, brought home uh, throughout the entire New Testament. But think of some of the other things that happen in John. In fact, if you look at the, the, the first chapter of John, there's that very famous passage about the Word became flesh and lived among us, right? The lived among us thing actually is the word tabernacle, used as a verb, tabernacled among us, kind of like became our temple, our portable temple right among us. You know the story in John 4 when he meets the Samaritan woman at the well and the Samaritans were kind of a, a, a inbreeding uh, with, with uh, Gentiles and they were, they were kind of unclean and, and they had their own temple on a mountain. And the woman at the well, who's kind of astonished that this Jewish teacher is even talking to her, says, our people say that you're supposed to worship on the mountain and your people say that you're supposed to worship in Jerusalem. Which one is it? Which temple is the right one? And Jesus said, the hour is coming when true worshipers will worship not on a mountain and not in Jerusalem, but in what? In spirit and in truth. And then at the story of the crucifixion, when Jesus says it is finished, there's a weather event. And then what happens in the temple? Do you remember I talked about the holy place and the most holy place and what was between them? Between the, pre, the, the people and the localized presence of God was a veil. And when the crucifixion happened, the, it's, the text tells us the veil was torn in two. It's a rather obvious symbolism, isn't it? That this temple is no longer the place where God's presence is localized, where forgiveness happens, where the day of atonement is taking place once a year. The new temple is in his body. John also wrote the book of Revelation, and it has this vision of the new Jerusalem. Revelation 21, 22, talking about the new Jerusalem, this is the observation that he makes. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb, the Lamb being Jesus. And then maybe my favorite expression of this idea is a little more abstract, Galatians 3.28, one of the most important verses in the Bible. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So all those different levels of division, so the Gentiles have to stay here, and the women can be here, and all the men can be here, and the priests are here, none of that matters anymore. He was speaking of the temple of his body. And so when we want to come to God and experience his presence and be the recipients of his grace and be forgiven of our sin and cleansed 
and made new and restored and changed. That doesn't happen in a physical place anymore, right? Uh, Even this physical place, which I'm frankly rather fond of. You don't, you don't come to this place because this is where God dwells. You come to this place because God is present in the temple of Christ's body. And you are his body. That's the other way this metaphor works out in the New Testament. You are the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ together. And so the temple is present in us all by our faith in Jesus himself. And so the closest we get to that when we come here is to celebrate at this table together. The bread and the wine, his body and blood. Not that this is the only place it's present, but that this is the place where we come to remember it together, to consume it together, to be unified around it together. And this morning... As we come to communion, I want to make the observation that uh, we, we shouldn't miss the emphasis on poverty in the story that we read today. There's this wonderful spiritual lesson that we receive from it, uh, but don't miss that point. See, when Jesus had overturned those tables, it wasn't just because people were being cheated. People, it was because poor people were being cheated. And I think it would be a terrible sin if our acts of worship ever drifted to the point where we were exploiting or cheating poor people. And you know where I think that starts? It doesn't actually start with something so evil and insidious. I think it starts with ignoring the plight of the poor. And with saying, I'm going to clench my money with my own two fists... And my answer is no, if you want some of it. And so we try so hard here to have open hands and open wallets. One of the ways that we're doing that during Lent is this special fast that we're doing, the Lenten fast uh, called Solidarity with the Poor. And I have our little cookie jar of money here, um, which uh, you're on the honor system with, obviously. Uh, those of you who are participating in, the, in this fast are changing the way you eat during Lent. You are, you're eating on a very strict, tight budget, um, trying to have some level of understanding of what it's like to be poor and not have all the disposable income you could possibly want to spend on fancy food. Some of you are actually changing the types of foods you eat, and you're eating rice and beans, or you're eating macaroni and cheese, or you're eating... Uh, uh, what's that nasty noodle? It's escaping me right now. Uh, ramen noodles, <laughs> right? And you're taking the money that you save on groceries or whatever you, however you're doing it, and we're donating it, and we're using it for the cause of, of helping people who are hungry here in our own town of Rochester. And so if you've been saving money uh, and want to bring it and donate it this way you can, you can obviously also do that online at artisanchurch.com slash giving, and there's a little drop menu that, that gives you the option to do the Lenten fast that way. Uh, But as we are thinking about the temple of his body and the change that he made, the statement that he made that that we should not exploit the poor or take advantage of them, um, 
let's remember that that is true of us as well, that we are always at risk of, of forgetting the plight of the poor. So when you come to the table this morning, uh, bring your offering if you brought it. And uh, we're going to continue to worship him in song. We're going to sing together some more this morning. And uh, I see that our children have been escorted down to the foyer there. So as we're up and around, if you could maybe one, one family at a time go out and bring them in kind of quietly while we continue to worship, that would be great. Uh, this table is an open table. You don't have to be a member of our church to participate. Um, if you're following Jesus in this place today, this table is open for you. Uh, come and respond as he leads you.